I never get a car, but you have to drive a car there. And you must imagine in, in such a mind, this mind, there's no light whatsoever. So the first time I was driving the car up there, I was scared to death. Welcome to Polar Podcasts, where you'll hear stories from geologists who've spent their careers, their lives, exploring and studying the remarkable and remote geology of Greenland. Why did they become fascinated with Greenland? What were the problems and the discoveries that drove them? And what was it like working in these remote places, where few people venture, even now? I'm Julie Holtz. In this episode, we hear more from Björn Thomason, Emeritus Senior Scientist from the Geological Survey of Denmark and Greenland, about his time working as a geologist and later a mine inspector at the Black Angel Lead Zinc Mine in West Greenland. So, the Black Angel, uh, that's a beautiful name on a beautiful uh, figure on a 1100 meter high near vertical mountain sides, uh, 80 kilometers east of Umanak. And it's, yeah, it's angel-like, you can also call it eagle. It looks like some birds and it's formed of, of uh, black mud stone uh, hosted by white marble, so it stands out. It's a very good name. And uh, near that angel figure, on the marble surrounded it, there's uh, rich deposits of uh, lead and zinc. The two names break into Marmolit because at the other side of the this uh, mountain face is a point actually between two fjords where there used to be carried uh, marbles in, in the Sotis and a bit later. And that place is called Marmolit. And that is where the mining town was built and the mill for processing the, the ore and, and also the harbor facility to, to ship out uh, lead and zinc concentrate. I worked there as mine geologist for two years from 1985 to 87. And the ore is situated uh, about 500 meter about sea level inside the Black Indian Mountain. It's actually outcropping in the salt sea, the sulfides, which are galena, svelorite and pyrite. You can see outcropping below the angel as a rusty horizon. To access that uh, mine, the mining company, which was a Canadian company, Comingo, they had to build a cable car station and the cable car was still the only access to the mine. So what happened was the tunnels were excavated following the ore and the way you mine ore, you, you have a tunnel. At the end of the tunnel, there's a face and that face should be in the ore. So you drill in, you have a jumbo drilling machine, drilling holes, and they're filled up with, with explosives. And then during the night, there's a team walking around in the mining and uh, igniting all the uh, explosive charges. Be bang. And the tunnel will advance three and a half meter, and uh, the floor is filled up with broken ore, which is then shifted to a shaft and uh, transported by trams, small trains at the lower level. And eventually, there's a coarse crusher, and the crush ore is eventually sent down to Mamoilik by the cable car. There's this car who could take uh, 40 tons of uh, ore. And it was running day and night, 24 hours and uh, it should produce uh, transport 2,000 tons uh, every 24 hours. If not, there was a panic because there was only buffer, that means store, storeroom for uh, two days production down on in Mamolik. So when the cable car was stopped, and it was stopped when it was blowing too hard, there was a speed limit, 25 second, uh, second meters, uh, 
It was not allowed to transport uh, people in the cable car and at a higher speed. can't remember what. The cable car was not allowed to run at all because the wind was across in, in the fjords. So when there was what they called wind speeds to stop, everybody was going panic because if that was going to uh, be for more than 48 hours, the buffer of uh, crushed ore, raw ore down at the mill would be empty. And then the mill would stop. It would take a week to get it running again. So there was desperation. I remember one, one Christmas night where there was a wind speed and the cable car was not running. There was uh, the shift, day shift. There were two shifts of 10 hours a day and a night shift. They, have, they had to stay overnight, uh, December 24th, uh, uh, up in the mine. There were no room, there were tea rooms, but it was uh, rather rough because of wind speed. So very dramatic. But apart from that, uh, life as a mine geologist was, uh, uh, there was this routine that in the morning I went up with the cable car and took my way around in the mine. And we were four geologists in, in the mine departments, uh, Black Angel. It was the chief geologist. He was made, sitting in his office uh, calculating all reserves and recalculating and subtracting everyday's production. And that was the key point, of course, all reserves. And that was the responsibility of that small department. And then there was four, there was always one on, on holiday. We worked four months on place, one month's uh, paid holiday. And then there were two foot geologists left and we shared the mine between us. And there were about 100 fronts of the tunnels where there was production. So we had half each. So when you came up, it's a small Toyota pickup. I never drive, a, I never been driving a car. I never had a car. But you had to drive a car there in the mine because it's 100 kilometer tunnels and that time in the mid 80s. I mean, the mine operation started in 73. So it was a mature uh, mine when I came up there. So there was a lot of old abandoned tunnels added there. And you must imagine in, in such a mine, this mine, there's no light whatsoever. So the light you had that was on the headlights you on the car, and then you had of course a hard hat with a, with a small lamp. So the first time I was driving the car up there, I was scared to death. I was it's in permafrost, so it's uh, it's cold up there, about minus four degrees, which is very good for my instability, by the way. But I was soaked by sweat of the sheer frightened to drive into that and how to orientate yourself. There are some some maps, of course, mind maps, but you know they're they're working things. They're filled with you know figures and uh, and lines and old lines. And anyway, I got used to it, and and then I was controlling the various uh, stopes where uh, faces and and the very important job because of all control so i should see too that what was mined by the miners that what they took out what we call all that fulfilled the quality car meters and uh, so i went around measuring the sickness and in doubt about the concentrations the metal concentration you could take a chip sample but those people standing behind you in the jumbo they wanted an answer here now so you just shoot from the hip you have to stop here because the ore is not good enough. It should be uh, at least 8% lead and zinc before it was economic to shoot it. If not, you should leave it. So then I had this, well, so this is poor. I had this, uh, you know, paint, spray paint. So I read red, big red letter, S-T-O-P. So they were not allowed to go. And they were also, I dis discussed with the foremans. They were operating in, in teams with the foremen in each. And I talked with the foremans for each of those 
And uh, I said, oh, that one, it can continue. They all will be good. It will continue. So just carry on. And then when I come up next day, they had drilled and blasted. And it was very interesting to see whether what they had found, whether they had blasted out, whether it was uh, real ore or gray rock, what we called waste. I mean, the mind, there were two things. There were ore and waste. Everything which was not ore, there was waste. Then in the middle of the day, I took the cable car down to the office sitting there. And then I wrote reports to the mine bosses. Uh, with recommendations and I've stopped that and that's dope but you should continue follow the ore and you shift to left they could move the tunnel you know left right up and down to follow the ore into the mountain and uh, I did that and I took care to to make drawings I have a lot of drawings of the faces but then when you come up next day and came in and I said well the ore continues you just take another round here came in I saw a, a face White face, pure marble, no sulfide at all. That means money out of the window. It was more or less guesswork and experience. But they they would let you know if you had uh, if you had failed. So it's a very exciting every time. But I would say that my time in in Black Angel is the most professional uh, exciting job I had because you had this this very day to day. They uh, hold you accountable for what you have written in your daily report. In principle, it was run the year round because money-wise, and as I said, the, the flotation, the mill, had to be fit continuously, because stopping the mill, you that would sack you. The same with the chief geologist, if he hadn't calculated the whole reserves uh, at a certain date, after the first of the month, I mean the first Friday in the new months, then he was sacked. I mean, it was everything was built on all reserves, and it was a the funny thing, because the geologist department, the small department, is a no esteem because everybody are earning more money. The miners earn much more money than, than the geologists and the engineers, of course. And the engineers, they decide everything in the mine. And the geologists, there were some funny people. They could just look after themselves. But we're drilling all the time for new ore, and then we were uh, stock keeping on the ore reserves. And... All economic uh, calculations are based on the production and all reserves, of course. And we were the uh, stakeholders of those things. So we were very important. But on the other hand, you can't... We try to explain the mining engineer layout. If you mine, uh, go into ore zone, this was room and pillar mining, meaning that it's underground mining and you can't take all, out all the ore because then the uh, roof will collapse. So you have to leave some pillars to support the roof. And say we have a flattish ore, but it was not equally thick. So we thought the smart thing was to put the pillars in where the ore is thin uh, and mine the surrounding room where the ore is thick. And we were measuring its thickness with, uh, you know, measuring thick all the time and put it into a computer. We had a database. So we had hold on, on the thickness of the ore. We did it electronic, by, by the way, that was uh, uh, in the, started in the early 80s, uh, uh, electronic uh, or uh, reserve database, also used for calculation. That was state of the art in those days. Remember, we came to, when Bolitten, Bolitten, a Swedish company, bought the mine in 86, and we went on a study, colleague and me, studied to up to Bolitten, and remember we came to the main office in Bolitten, you know, big Swedish company, and uh, they're quite good confidence with themselves, you know, Swedish quality, and we know them, and they're skilled, there's nothing wrong with that. But then we're <coughs> sitting at the main office in the, in the Bolitten town, 
And I said, could we see your, how you handle your, your, your all reserve? Uh, because we had everything in computer and he didn't like it. And then he took an art book and there it was written in with pencil. So they were behind there. But that was how it was on to the early eaters. Now, everything in that place was about production and all reserves. Uh, the role of the geological department, we had free hands to uh, drill for, uh, Whenever you got an idea, documentation of the ore was, before they started mining, they had done systematic drilling uh, with a fixed space, 50 meters or something, and documented, and that was documented on in, in sections, which was drawn up on, on mylar. Nowadays you do it in a computer. Those days were hence there was a, a drafter sitting and doing that all the time. And if you got an idea, either what you saw in the mine or what you saw in the sections, that in there there must be more ore. Then we had a permanent up there, two drill rigs. So we just made a layout for, for drilling and gave it to them and said, you drill for more. And that was, that was a fun part, of course, to try. And that was quite successful because the mine started up with a proven ore reserve of 4 million tons. And eventually we ended up with mining 11 million tons. And there were 1 million tons left and pillars and stuff. So we managed to triple the ore reserve during production. That was great fun. After two years working at Black Angel, Bjorn left for a position with the Geological Survey, working in South Greenland, which you can hear about in the next episode. After that, he applied for a position as a mine inspector with the survey. So uh, I applied for a a job then, uh, which was vacant, and that was as a mine inspector for uh, the Black Angel mine, which I had left a year previously. So I know that mine. I knew that mine. And uh, that was great fun. I came up now um, as official representative of the system, the state system, which has issued the, the license. That means empowered to close the mine if they didn't fulfill the, the commitments. So I could travel four, four times a year after my choosing and went around in the mine. And what I should control was essentially all reserves and uh, all production. And I can tell a lot about what's happened with uh, with uh, production because uh, the mill was constructed to process 800,000 tons of ore a year, resulting in, I can't remember, 150,000 tons of concentrates, lignancy concentrates, something like that. Problem was, there was a team monitoring the from also from the state environmental people the the environment out in the fjords and they had put restrictions on the production because the thinking was when when the mill was running on full capacity 100 percent there'd be more pollution so they had cut it down and said you should only let it run on 95 percent and that was controlled efficiently but how much concentrate how much ore came into the mill and how much concentrate and waste came out and I had to report those figures over the official, so I put up tables on that. And um, for some reason, there always came more ore into the mill than they had concentrated out. Or so it, did, it didn't fit out because we could see uh, geological departments uh, measured what had been mined up the mine, simply uh, subduction, daily production from, from uh, all reserves. And then there was a weight on the crust ore which came into the mill and with also weight on the concentrates which came out and it didn't fit out and I, I can't see it. Uh, I mean my impression was that those uh, engineers 
They couldn't bear to let the mill run, not on full capacity. Why shouldn't they? And then they manipulated the, the weights somehow. And when I saw that first time, I said to my boss, yeah, something's wrong here. They're cheating. I said, we know that. We all know that. Don't say it to him. He said, just leave your figure in the table because nobody will understand it. And uh, they had employed a mining engineer at the company. He did nothing but monitor stability and the several factors. But what he did in principle, he had stations around in the mine and he had a wire coming from the roof and a fixed point at the bottom. And the distance between the loose hanging wire from the roof and the fixed point at the bottom, he measured the distance of five centimeters. And he came every day. So uh, with a micrometer, he could measure. And the thing is, if the roof is coming down, it won't do it at once. It becomes slow. Uh, and it measures in millimeters. And he put that in his uh, computer so he could draw maps. And he could see where in the mine do we have a larger convergence and other places. He also mapped out the pillars, whether they were breaking up. If they took too much loads, they will, you could see they were crisscrossed by cracks. And in the worst scenario, there was what they called domino pillar collapse. And you can imagine a situation, there was a very large room in the old part of the mine, which had been mined out with pillars uh, centimeters high. When you were standing there, you had your lamp in and you were hot. Looked up there, you, could, you couldn't see the roof. Anyway, they were afraid if the pillars were gone, one was gone, there would be more pressure on the surrounding pillars, so they will yield also, and they will yield, so there will be this uh, dominant pillar collapse. They would say, and everything would collapse. And that was the worst case scenario that should be avoided. And that came to a very interesting uh, choice at the end of the life of the mine. They wanted to mine the big pillars in the pillar room just inside the mine. The 30 meter high pillars and they were sick. So there were half a month's production or production in one pillar. And we as, as a society, the states, we had to look for safety. And we sought all sorts of guarantees that if we allowed them to take the pillars, we should be sure that we didn't have this dominant pillar collapse. So the requirements we put up, we said you should fill up with waste. So that if the roof uh, collapsed, the roof fell down on, on the waste. So uh, marble, pure marble, were transported in and water was uh, sprayed over it, which froze, so stabilized. And then they turned in 10 meters below the, the pillar. And from there, they drilled up and in the pillar. And then they made one big explosion. And the whole pillar went whoosh, down. 10 meters through the floor and uh, ended up in a big heap in the tunnel below and they could drive it to the shaft and then further on into the middle of the very good all. And then this uh, technician, this uh, my engineer, he went out and looked at the station, how much, now we're seeing that big, big pillar, they all had names of course the pillars, how much has the roof come down and you have to have a time factor, there's a time factor too, you have to wait. So we had to set up rules, you can't take the next pillar before we have waited three weeks or something. And that was held up with at the end uh, time of the mine, uh, how long should we let the mine or should the company, the, the mine running, that was huge investment of course with, with salaries and equipment and, and as they were not allowed to sail in in the winter months everything all sort of equipment and stores uh, food and, and fuel and things should be brought in in summertime sometimes they had to stop when 
that couldn't secure poor enough. So we are up against that. Also, as society, we want the mine to be as empty as possible. That's best for society. On the other hand, we have the risk, safety risk. And how do we weigh that? And there were some very interesting discussions. Another very interesting thing in that mine, there was uh, a water problem. In most normal mines, you pump pump water. But here, Black Angels, that was in, in permafrost, minus four degree. So all water was frozen, no problem. So they were mining happily. And the chief engineer said, now we're in permafrost, but the permafrost is going to end. You watch it. They were tunneling in and uh, from surface drilling, they found a very good deposit below the ice called the deep ice zone. So they were going to hit that with a production tunnel. Boop, boop, boop. Chief geologist says, you might come out of the permafrost. And certainly they came out of the per- permafrost. And the water standing under pressure because there were 300 meters of rock and ice on top and all those cracks and and things when you're out of the permafrost zone. The whole mine was flushed, uh, seven kilometers, and and, uh, water was coming out of the mine opening, just opposite the mining town in Mamuli. So the authorities, just before my time, they stopped mining. They said, now we have an environmental catastrophe. So they had to stop the mine, the water. And that took them a year, because how do we stop water flowing? It was so difficult. And in the end, they injected concrete, and they made the tunnel out to this deep ice zone. It was beautiful, rich, very rich ore, and they got it mined. But it was very costly, because for every round, three, I mean three and a half meter, they moved the tunnel forward. They had to inject the surrounding with concrete. And then at the end of the mine, the environmental people, biologists, and we also diverted the water. It was flown out and another opening because you can't stop water. It's just the flow. But even though biologists said now, uh, mining company, their requirement when you stop mining, they had to, to remove a waste dump going into the water, but they also had to stop the water flowing out of that other outlet. Just diverted and flowing out in uh, water, in pure water. But you know what? what no. They were afraid that this would freeze out, so the water would continue over that and float the whole, whole mine. Probably is uh, all over the mine, the, the galena, crushed galena on the floor, because the big trucks, the, the, they're always losing some of, of the ore on the floor. So it's generally very pollution. Latest, of course, uh, the big pollution. There. So environmental people said that uh, decided there should be built a wall uh, to keep the water out of the mine, and they asked me as a geologist, you show, show us where there are no cracks in the rock. So I looked at the mapping and found a place where mapping geologists put no cracks on us and you put it here. But, and we had warning, I was at that meeting and our rock mechanics, Norwegian genius, very nice person, uh, and he kept saying to the biologist, it's this meeting here, it's, it's a waste, I remember, it's the waste of your money and my time to build the water, you can never keep the water back. But uh, they insisted, the state, required company, you must build that seven meter thick wall. So they built the walls and there was a nice tap. And remember the foreman who, he was very proud of his, his great work. That's right, seven meter thick in that zone, plop real concrete, plop there. And a tap you could open and close. And then we came up a week later, there was just as much water. Floating past it, it came out of all sorts of cracks because the water under pressure and it was marble, the filled up with cracks. 
and it's still flowing. And then they gave up the biologist. But the expert, he had sat on that meeting very distinct. You're wasting my time and your money. I'm Julie Hollis, and you've been listening to Polar Podcasts. In the next episode, we hear more from Emeritus Senior Scientist Bjorn Thomason about running a field program on a cliff face, exploring the Niobium and Tantalum-enriched Motsfeld intrusion.